You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. And as we just heard in the headlines, former Hawaii County Mayor uh, Billy Kanoi lost his battle with cancer yesterday. We thought we would take this time to play part of an inspirational speech he gave to the Hawaii Pacific University class of 2014. For those who knew him, it was classic Kanoi. I just want to congratulate all of you for having the courage to dream and the determination to make those dreams come true. Henry Ford once said, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're right. In other words, local style, eh, no such thing, no can, okay? <laughs> Always can. The only thing you gotta figure out, and you already did, because you got your degree and you're here for graduation, is how can, right? Because <laughs> always can. Any obstacle, hurdle, or barrier is just meant to go over, around, or through. And when any of you question, when further challenges arise, just remember today. Remember this feeling of accomplishment and achievement. Relish it, embrace it, and rub it all over. Because anytime you doubt yourself, remember what got you here. Remember, you dreamed. You dreamed and set a goal. You had a goal of acquiring higher education, which is the great equalizer of our society. Higher education opens the doors to the potential and possibilities of your life. I'm here to tell you it's true, not just because I catch a couple degrees, but because I had on 1.8 GPA out of high school, and when I told guys I was going to college, they told me, easy, Hawaiian. Maybe you better throttle back some of that ambition and dreams. I'm here to tell you guys, no listen to them, okay? Because next thing you know, anything is possible. And so we bid aloha to Billy Kinoy, who served as mayor of the Big Island from 2008 to 2016. The colorful and sometimes controversial mayor was just 52 years old. You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. American Samoa's repatriation system picked up five positive COVID cases so far among the more than 160 residents in quarantine here in Honolulu. This is American Samoa's first attempt to help residents get home since the pandemic closed its borders more than 10 months ago. HPR's Ku'uve Hirishi joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Five American Samoan residents planning to return home at the end of this week have now been removed from quarantine at that Waikiki Hotel after testing positive for the coronavirus. So this is among some more than 1,400 residents of American Samoa who've been stranded abroad after COVID-19 closed their territory's borders in March of last year. And so part of this repatriation process Bringing them home is ensuring stranded residents are virus-free as they return home, but uh, also includes multiple COVID-19 testing and the total of two dozen days uh, in quarantine. Ginger Porter with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Foundation is one of four people here in Honolulu who's overseeing the repatriation efforts on behalf of the American Samoa government. And she says the handful of positive cases found in this process actually proves how effective uh, the system is. So that's why we have quarantine in place, right? So that we can, we can have all these tests done and so that we are not taking any of the positive home. Uh, and then still all offer them an opportunity to go home. So they're not necessarily, you know, like you can't go home at all, you know? Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, it's just that there are policies in place with the Department of Health, American Samoa, that after a positive, so there should be a 30-day gap in between of when you can return home. So, you know, the, the next flight out or even the third flight would be an opportunity for these people. You know, it's great that the system worked, but they must be so disappointed, those five. <laughs> they definitely are. After 10 months of, of being apart from of friends and family back home, 
I'm sure that uh, was a, a shocker. The American Samoa Health Authorities have actually said part of this group of five included a family who had traveled uh, from the mainland. And so contact tracing and ongoing testing is happening. Right now, those five have been removed from the quarantine at the White Sands Hotel in Waikiki and are also uh, actually under the uh, care of state health officials as they go through this process. Uh, so far, no hospitalizations. Um, but uh, yes, hopefully, Porter has said that they are planning one repatriation flight a month uh, from Honolulu to Pongo Pongo. And at that rate, with the 1,400 or so American Samoa residents already signed up for repatriation, it could take as many as seven flights to get everyone home. Uh, but Porter says that's something that the government is committed uh, to doing. American Samoa wasn't the only Pacific Island country to close its borders and leave many of their residents stranded abroad uh, during the pandemic. We had done some coverage on uh, those from the uh, Marshall Islands who were stranded here and also the Federated States of Micronesia closed their borders. And part of that, uh, and we've seen it here in Hawaii as well, is that the lack of that, uh, the health infrastructure in place to properly care for a pandemic outbreak in these countries. And so the closure of borders was something we've seen around the world. Uh, Porter says, you know, being stranded in another country under a pandemic has been challenging financially and, and emotionally for, for many of the American Samoa residents. But she hopes the repatriation process, however tedious, can give residents a, an opportunity to, to return home. That's exactly what it is, right? An opportunity to go home. So the borders aren't open, but this is the pathway to go home. Since March of last year, that's when the borders officially closed. So, you know, we're running we're running up the at the against the year mark. But some people were here yeah, some people were here even December of twenty nineteen, right? So they came for Christmas and then okay, going home in March, but unfortunately <laughs> the borders closed then. So it's it's been very difficult, um, you know, for a lot of people and it's it's time to go home. So that first flight, uh, that included those five positive cases, so the five are staying here to heal and to wait for that 30-day gap. But the remainder of that group is set to depart for Pongo Pongo Friday uh, out of Honolulu. And uh, once they arrive in Samoa, they will quarantine for another 14 days at a hotel and test it again. Once more before rejoining the community. Yeah, I'm just wondering now, like how many of of uh, those folks that are waiting to go home, you know, maybe will have the opportunity to get the vaccine also, you know, while they're over here. Right. I do know. Uh, yesterday they finished up uh, the post quarantine testing for this group that's headed home. Uh, they did that yesterday. It went really quickly. And then some in the group, mostly the healthcare workers, so Porter. Uh, went ahead and did have access to the vaccine. I'm not entirely sure. I haven't heard any reports of uh, those residents being repatriated getting the vaccine, but I do know uh, the healthcare workers working with those folks have. Yeah, but that would be an added, uh, I guess, peace of mind, you know, because certainly you don't want to be the one that's going to bring it, you know, to American Samoa. Uh, since they've been, you know, uh, pretty good at, uh, you know, protecting the residents there. Right. They've had uh, four cases, and they were the last U.S. territory to have a confirmed case of COVID, and it wasn't until November, I believe, of, of last year. And then uh, and it was in those cases, I think all four were crew members aboard cargo ship. And so that idea of keeping those borders even more tight... <laughs> is something that the government was very much well aware of. And so bringing their, their residents home in this safe manner, I think, is something residents themselves are, are happy to do to make sure that their family and friends back home are safe. And then do you know about the airlines? Is it uh, Hawaiian Air that flies there? Hawaiian Airlines is, yes, is taking this first group. As far as I know, uh, there is a Hawaiian Airlines employee who is part of uh, the American Samoa's COVID-19 task force to ensure they have this partnership in place. Yeah, very interesting 
in terms of coordinating something massive like like repatriating 1,400 American Samoan residents. Yeah, I, I saw something that said that Hawaiian was actually bringing back some of its furloughed employees. And, uh, you know, certainly if they're uh, going to be adding flights down there, you know, that's a positive thing. Exactly. Win-win. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kuvehi. And then we'll see uh, how that flight goes on Friday. Mahalo. We have been talking to HPR's Kuvehi Hirishi. To find her stories, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, committed to bringing people together to build homes, now hiring a volunteer program coordinator. Job description and information at honoluluhabitat.org. I'm Bert Lum, today on Bike Mark Cafe. We'll find out about a Navy program called Tech Bridges. We'll learn how Tech Bridges aims to get local companies to help build technology solutions to support the Department of Defense as well as the commercial sector. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Did you know that deer was said to have first arrived in the Hawaiian Islands back in the 1800s as a gift to King Kamehameha V? Now found out in the wild on several islands, the long-established populations of deer have taken their toll on our ecosystems. We recently talked to Senator Kalani English about a growing public health problem as drought conditions are causing the collapse of the population of deer on Molokai. But the deer aren't just a problem for the Friendly Isle. So my district is the largest district, uh, geographical district in Hawaii. You know, I have the islands of Molokai, Lanai, Kaho'olawe, and then I have all of upcountry Maui and East Maui and Hana, where I live. So, you know, if you land at Maui Airport and look east, all of that is my district including the airport. So I have one of the most unique districts in that, you know, I have multiple islands and multiple societies. We have a problem with one that could have been avoided, by the way, a problem on Molokai. It's most acute on Molokai, but it's also on Lanai, and it's also in, on Maui. So the deer uh, population, you know, was exploded, took off, and then it collapsed. So what happened was there was not enough food for the amount of deer, and there was mass starvation and mass die-off. So right now there's thousands of carcasses and deer dying every day all over on Molokai. They've come down from, you know, where they norm up in the mountains and other areas, and they've come into the towns. Um, We've had hundreds of car accidents over the last year on Molokai because, you know, deer doesn't just run in front of you. It jumps high and jumps in front of a moving car. So they can get over an eight-foot fence. So we have a big problem now on Molokai. And, you know, Representative Decoit and I have have tried to deal with this over the years. We had bills to put in place eradication and and control programs. And it was, you know, uh, opposed by a few members of the Molokai community. And the bills died here. That was a couple years ago. Now we have this huge problem. So we're trying to go back and fix that. You know, we're working with the local landowners on Molokai. We're also working with the state and county governments to everybody chip in, and we've, we've had to dig deep holes to put dead carcasses in. We've employed, for example, the county of Maui machines, the state of Hawaii highways machines to go and dig the holes, move carcasses. We're having to arrange, and we're still working on this, you know, programs to go and uh, now call the herds down because you have, they're, they're starving. They're emaciated. You know, they're coming into people's, down into populated areas, and dying, how do we bring the herds down? So it's a very sad situation, which could have been avoided, you know, had we been allowed to move the bills we put forward. And it goes to show, you know, that ecologies of our islands are very fragile. And when one thing went out of whack, so the population of the deer just took off, it caused, you know, they overgrazed areas. Now we have much bigger runoff into the waters in Molokai than previously. We have all the most of the farms on Molokai have failed because the deers have gone in and eaten all of their crops. So we're trying to get the ecology back into balance. 
and we're working right now we're working with a big number of people including the governor and the executive departments to deal with this so the same thing is happening on maui and upcountry maui the deer population has gone around towards hana and it's also coming down into kahului and kihei so you have deer that's right along the border of the airport and pretty soon they'll be jumping over the fence of the airport and getting the way of planes landing that's so, not good no so it's a big problem on maui as well so will there be any uh, new legislation this uh, session yes they are um lynn Representative DeQuaid and I are working on that, but we're also trying to deal with it immediately. And, you know, we're working with the governor on more than likely doing an emergency proclamation to allow for immediate relief. And then we're working on, you know, very similar to the bills we had introduced in the past. But this time, you know, we're, we're not going to wait for, for example, there's a thing called the Game Management Program. And they have a report which was supposed to have a program to manage the game on Molokai that was never turned in by the commissioner, and therefore it's three or four years late, and therefore uh -huh. there was no plan. So what we're doing is simply saying, Governor, we put this plan in place. You know, you have to override the commission because there was no oversight. You know, DLNR didn't make them turn it in or didn't finish it or whatever it was, right? It's incomplete. It never got yep. done. Yeah, and the person that did it was the one that came down and testified against the bill. You, you see what I mean, right? right? We're trying to... So we probably have bills to do that, but right now the, the emergency proclamation will probably put that into place immediately. That was Maui Senator Kalani English talking about how the population of deer is affecting his district. Tomorrow we'll hear from Maui Nui Venison's owner Jake Muse to get his insight on the deer uh, problem across Maui County and what can be done to complement government action to deal with the die-off on Molokai. food system. That is the subject of today's reality check. Uh, Jessica Terrell is a deputy editor at Honolulu Civil Beat and joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. So this story that you've uh, uh, done online today is the first of a series of stories on this subject. Yeah, we're going to be spending the next year taking a look at this. I mean, it's such a huge issue for Hawaii. We import um, somewhere between 80 and 85 percent of the food that we eat here, and that impacts our cost of living and um, our health, and it impacts the environment. And as we see now with the pandemic and, of course, concerns every couple of years with hurricanes, it also puts us in a pretty fragile position. So... We're going to be taking a, a deep dive at what it would really take for Hawaii to grow more of its own food and make that accessible at an affordable price to people. Yeah, and this pandemic certainly has, uh, you know, put the light on the vulnerabilities of our distribution system. You know, we don't grow enough food here to feed everybody, and, uh, you know, we've had shortages. Yeah, you know, I think uh, Molokai really got a sense of that uh, when they had some COVID cases at the grocery store. And, you know, I was talking to folks over there who said that really drove home how dependent we are on our supply chain. Um, but, you know, when people think about food security here, they're often thinking about how we can get farmers to grow more food. But it's about so much more than that. I mean, it's our entire food system. It's how we, we grow food, but also how the food is processed and how that makes it to the grocery store shelves or to farmers markets or CSAs. And it's it's a lot more than lettuce and tomatoes. It's it's all of our staple crops. It's, um, it's our pasta and our rice and our bread and figuring out how to get all of that um, here it's it's a huge challenge yeah I mean I think we were talking with some of the large food uh, distribution centers and they said yeah when the shutdown happened you know they had to dump a lot of stuff you know like what do you do with all the milk that was supposed to go to all the schools right when school was shut down so there's just so many different facets uh, to examine uh, you know certainly you mentioned the uh, the farmers markets you know they they did the farm to car uh, program, right? Uh, just because they couldn't get people out to the markets. 
Yeah, but the farm to car, I mean, one of the silver linings of the pandemic from people that I've talked to has also been how many, um, you know, there's so much food insecurity during the pandemic. We've seen those huge lines to the food um, distributions at Aloha Stadium. But a lot of um, food banks are also able to buy local food right now because it's not going to hotels and to tourists. And so there's actually been a lot of local access to at least local produce um, more than we would see regularly. So that's been a bit of a silver lining and and things like farm to car and um, different like boxes that are being um, shipped or dropped off or delivered to people now of local um, vegetables, but also meat and meal prep um, really is expanding how people are getting from small farms, getting food from small farms, um, which is which is an exciting thing. And you talked to growers at uh, Ma'o uh, Ma uh, Organic Farms and uh, Kualoa Ranch. Yeah, we talked to farmers and we're going to be talking to more, a lot more of them. I mean, the sense from people that I've talked to is that this really has to, the solution to this has to involve everybody. It has to involve small growers and big growers. We need a lot more big growers to make an economic price point where people can afford local food. We need to make it easier for people to do subsistence farming. I mean, it's going to take... Uh, efforts in, in every direction. Um, and that's the other, I think, uh, silver lining in the pandemic right now is that there's, there's a new urgency to this and a new sense of collaboration. You know, a lot more nonprofits are talking to each other and talking to food growers and really trying to identify, like, what are the bottlenecks that are stopping um, us from being able to make some progress on this? Because it's not a new problem, right? We've known about this for for decades, and we've been working on it for decades without without a whole lot of large systemic movement, it seems like. You know, and of the local farmers that we've reached out to, I mean, they're pretty jazzed. You know, they say, oh, people really see how important we are, and they're and they're trying, you know, our local uh, locally grown celery or, or things that, uh, you know, you normally would be buying in the supermarket that come from, you know, California or wherever. And so the 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 farmers are jazz but what i'm wondering is you know where where are our government officials you know do we have a plan to to grow our farmers yeah, that's a really good question. And what I'm what I'm hearing from people is really that it's it's farmers and nonprofits now that are coming together and and food um, distributors, like a lot of other people, not necessarily the, the state government leading the way on this right now. Um, but there is a lot of energy in this area. And yeah, a lot of folks who really want to see uh, where their food is coming from and and try to support farmers in a way because they see the value of that now with the pandemic. So hopefully we've got some really good energy going toward this um, as we as we figure a way out of our problem. Okay, looking forward to your stories. Thanks so much, Jessica. Thank you. That was Deputy Editor Jessica Terrell with today's Reality Check. To read her stories, go to civilbeat.org. The decision to close St. Anne's School this summer sent shockwaves throughout the Catholic community this weekend because of its long presence on Oahu's Windward side. School officials say they have struggled with low enrollment over the last decade. Phil Bossert is head of HEIS, the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools. We reached out to him to talk about how our private schools are faring with this pandemic. It's been really tough for all the schools, public and private. <laughs> Among the private schools, the extra costs of trying to stay afloat during the pandemic was significant. Every school had to buy a bunch of extra materials and in many cases hire some extra people to help clean the school or, or to help manage the students because you couldn't have as many students in one place at one time. And all those extra costs just really added up at the same time that many parents either lost their job or had reduction in salary so almost all of the private schools increased their financial aid that they were offering in order to help families make that transition. So financially, it's been very tough for the schools. Also, not just financially, everybody suddenly had to learn to do distance learning, which initially was rough on both the teachers and the students. I think over the summer, they almost all the schools provided 
extra training and, and bought extra equipment and stuff like that in order to make distance education a little more functional. So it's, I would say, although most of our schools are mostly back in session with in-person learning, almost all of them still offer to their parents the option of home-based study for their kids if uh, they need it. And talk about how the schools are faring, because they've been managing this COVID thing pretty well, right? Because they're half in session and half out. Uh, yeah, all of the schools, after they got sort of past that shock, that initial pivot, which in some cases they just shut down for two weeks while they tried to figure out what to do, all of them have managed pretty well. But the very small schools, uh, in some cases, that don't have much technology, they just went right back to in-person learning with very careful uh, planning. Every school had to um, put together a COVID plan for how they would deal with the extra cleaning and providing extra space between the desks or the plastic barriers or, in some cases, half the kids on campus one week and the other half the next week. And so by the fall... This past fall, I would say 80% of our kids were back in in-person learning environments. It especially hit harder, though, our schools that have preschools because the Department of Human Services had very strict guidelines on how many students could be with one teacher in one space. And so it almost cut in half the population of students that our preschools could accept. Right. I believe it was the children's house, I think, yes. that modified, you know, who their clientele will be going forward just because they have to keep a smaller footprint. You know, and we saw a number of Catholic schools, I think, over the years struggle to stay afloat. And this recent thing with St. Anne's, you know, I mean, they've been around for so long. Yeah, 180 years. The school was founded at the same time the church opened. So that school has been there as part of that church and community for 180 years. How are the private schools dealing with enrollment and admissions, you know, and then also tours? Because, you know, I think we're in a time where they normally would be doing uh, site visits and that kind of thing. So what's changed? So that was another area where I think the admissions officers and to some extent the advancement officers too, the, the development officers who were trying to bring back the alumni for their you know, gatherings and alumni events, they had to come up with virtual versions of those. And though I know the admissions officers, in some cases they just filmed a, a, a virtual tour using an an iPhone or a video camera, and put that online. In some cases, I'm aware that just as a parent might come on campus and have a student walk them through the campus talking about it, they have a parent signs up, and um, a student gets his or her iPhone out and turns on the video and then walks through the campus <laughs> talking about the school and the campus as the parents see the various locations. Heard of the several cases for some of the larger campuses where People can drive through the campus while talking with an admissions officer about the school so they don't even get out of their car. So they're on the phone with an administrator as they're driving through the campus? Yeah, and the same thing, like I said, uh, with the advancement officers. A lot of the uh, class gatherings that would have had their 5th or 10th or 30th alumni reunions, those became virtual events and with food delivered for dinners and online things like that, and, and then fundraising concepts that were 100% virtual, too. It used to be a dinner and an auction, so the auction goes online, and then they contract with a restaurant to deliver food to your home, and they try to make it a still a, a gathering of people together doing something with the school. So a lot of creativity, I think, in that. Last time we talked, I think, oh, gosh, schools were seeing a decline of enrollment of about 3% for public and private. So has that changed? Somewhat. We were slightly down going into the fall, but surprisingly, many of our schools have reported that there's new students showing up in January from parents who've moved the mainland to Hawaii, either permanently or temporarily. So one of our schools on Maui had 37 brand new students show up from 
families have come into Hawaii over the Christmas holidays, and we've had, talking to the head of St. Andrew's School, they had seven new students show up in January. So I think because the state, you know, is promoting that work remotely from Hawaii because we're safer, and, and I think a lot of people are taking taking us up on that. So we'll see what happens. We're actually in the process of collecting our enrollment data for the private school guide this month, so we'll have a, a better idea of what those numbers are by the end of January. And are we changing anything as far as, like, admissions on deadlines, you know, and also tuition? don't know much yet about tuition because that's the second thing we collect during February. We'll ask every school to let us know what their planned tuition are. Almost no schools raised tuition from last year to this year, so I don't know if they can do that again or not. For admissions, typically the recruitment season, the admission season is in the fall, and the deadlines for applications are December, January. But I would say 95, 98% of our schools are have moved to rolling admissions this year for several reasons. One, that it's just hard for families to plan at this point. They don't know, are they going to get their job back when the economy starts picking up again, or are they going to be unemployed? And then also, if it looks like long-term unemployed. I'm sure you heard about the out-migration last year. We had several thousand families move to the mainland and take their kids with them. So between HEIS and, and Department of Education, we think between us we lost almost 6,000 students from the count last year into this year. So I don't know exactly what the future holds. So a lot of our schools are just giving parents extra time to think through what they want to do. Are we seeing more schools apply for licensing since HEIS is now charged with that? Yes. So basically the law, Act 227, that was passed two years ago and became uh, officially effective July 1, 2020, I would say probably 10 or 12 schools that we had never heard of came out of the woodwork and applied for licensing. And so we had thought that there were about 105 or six private schools in Hawaii, but our count is now up to 112 that are licensed or compliant, as they say, if they're accredited by WAS, Western Accrediting Association, or the Western Catholic Schools Association then they don't need to be licensed or figure that accreditation is equivalent to licensing. So so the count is up to 112. We filed the first licensing report with the state, as the law requires. Is there a bump on any particular island? Are you seeing more of these new schools pop up on one island or another? Most of them are on Oahu. That's where the population is. We did have, I think, one new big island and two Maui small schools added to the count. I had a, a variety of entities that didn't know whether they were a school or not. We had to come up with a, an official definition of what a private school was because some places are really homeschool support services, and so they don't really give a diploma or keep a transcript. And so if they don't do that, then we don't call them a school. And they still have a right to offer operate as a business in the state. They just aren't under the licensing law. Okay, so that would be more under homeschooling and uh, having to check with the Department of Education. I'm sure that is where a portion of that 6,000 students that Christina Kishimoto and I could not figure out where they went. Uh, they went into homeschooling options. Uh, in some cases, it's a, it's a formal operation with an online site. In, in some cases, they have a you know, you can go to a location for certain types of lab or instructional services, but mostly you stay home. And in some cases, it's just two or three families getting together and saying, we're going to let's use Frank and Jeannie's house and drop our kids off there in the morning. And they're homeschooled either through online services or in some cases, they even the families pitch in and hire a retired teacher to come and offer instruction and sort of a one room schoolhouse put together in the neighborhood. So a homeschool hui of sorts. Yeah, exactly. We've been talking to Phil Bossert, head of the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools. He was surveying the landscape of schools as we try to navigate through the health and e economic impacts of COVID-19.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Punahou Schools Sydney and Mini Kosasa Community for grades 2 through 5, a learning environment designed to cultivate sustainability and a global perspective. Punahou.edu. Join us on Saturday, January 30th for a virtual concert with Ron Artis II from his home in Oregon. From a large musical family, Artis has a sound all his own, blending Delta blues, gospel, northern soul, and R&B. The Oahu native now lives in Portland but always looks for chances to connect with his fans in his island home. Reserve your spot at hbrtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for this week's Manu Minute with University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart. He introduces us to the long-legged shorebird known as the kolea. The song of the kolea, or Pacific Golden Plover, can only be heard from August to April in Hawaii. By late April, parts of their golden plumage have changed to black and white, and they embark on an incredible three to four day non-stop journey to Alaska to breed. When the parents are done caring for their babies, all the kolea return to Hawaii by late August to escape the cold Alaska winters. Kolea are long-legged shorebirds that are most often seen on shorelines and lawns foraging for insects and worms. The annual migrations of kolea are thought to have been one of the many cues used by Polynesians in their navigations across the Pacific. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. And this week's Mono Minute was made with recordings from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Hawaii Public Radio's weekly feature, Mono Minute, is now a podcast. Uh, hear the beautiful sounds of island songbirds and find out why many are threatened by their changing environment. Subscribe to it uh, in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or through your RSS feed. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to help protect rare and endangered birds and plants at friendsofhakalauforest.org. about becoming an educator but don't know where to begin well a virtual event this saturday will show you the way the event called it's great to be a teacher has been held in person on oahu but due to covid restrictions it is now available for free via zoom the event is organized by the state teacher education coordinating committee whose members include uh, educator preparation programs and the state department of education Hawaii State Teachers Association, and the University of Hawaii at Manoa's College of Education. Uh, Nazia Azni and Jana Kim are with the UH Manoa's College of Education and are organizers of the event. They spoke with the Conversations producer Jason Ubai about going virtual. Here's Janet. Last year, we really started thinking about, well, because it was a face-to-face -face session on Oahu, how can we really either duplicate the event and take it to the other islands? Um, and then COVID happened and here we are. And so actually we're, we're feeling quite fortunate this year that just because of circumstances, everyone's gotten a little bit more comfortable with doing things online anyways. And so when we were thinking about how do we redesign this event to take advantage of what being online has to offer, we really looked at, well, anything that would be normally a sit down and just listen to for a long time, we would pre-record it and stick it on a website so that people can have access to it at any time, right? So really now we're kind of extending the event outside of just this one date where people can have the information they're looking for. And then on the actual event, the advantage of coming to the event is the fact that we have designed it so that it's tracked by the participants' needs. For example, we tracked it by, well, what if you're in high school or what if you have a high school diploma, where do you start? And we actually took all the teacher preparation programs in the state that would cater to that population and we stuck them in a sequence so that people could just on that day go and listen and learn to all the programs that would be good for a high school um, student. 
Um, and then we have another track for people who are looking to get their bachelor's degree. Maybe they already have an associate's degree, and so we made a track for them as well. And then we have a final larger track, which is for those who already have a degree in something. And what's great about teaching is your degree can be in anything. That's our job as the teacher preparation programs, to teach you how to teach. But you can come in with a degree in marketing or a degree in business or a degree in health and, and nursing. I mean, it really doesn't matter. Um, and so the idea is that the design of the It's Great to Be a Teacher live event is to support people in finding the right program for them so that they can actually pursue their teaching license. Is there any particular area that you're looking for folks, um, any group that you're, you're focusing in on this year? This year we did, we are looking more at like a long-term pipeline, right? So we know that there's a lot of uncertainty right now with budget cuts and what that's gonna do in terms of positions and what's available. But when it really comes down to is the fact that we're always going to need teachers. We've had a teacher shortage in Hawaii for decades. And even though we're kind of struggling and things are a little bit different because of the uniqueness of our situation right now, we're going to need teachers to, to be developed year after year after year. And so we really did open it up. This is the first year where we really targeted high school teacher academies and invited all of the community college representatives in education to participate. And so again, I think previously we were really honing in on you know, people who are already in schools, whether they were substitutes or EAs and how to kind of get them into a teaching um, certificate program so that they could teach right away. I think this year we're really expanding it to focus on more of that long-term pipeline for people who might want to get started now, but they wouldn't actually become a teacher until, you know, a couple years down the road when we're a little bit more certain on what our teacher landscape is going to look like. Yeah, that's, that's kind of why, you know, it's, a question that might pop into the layperson's mind might be, why isn't DOE, you know, doing doing these? I mean, they are doing their own recruitment events, but why are we having the teacher education programs themselves recruiting in the context of, hey, do you want to become a teacher versus recruiting in the context of, hey, do you want to go to college? <laughs> you know, because many of these are college programs. Many of them are undergrad and grad programs with some um, spattering of, of um, alternate route. But what we're really look, looking for now is really kind of um, capitalizing on the efforts and initiatives that have been building over the past couple of years and that have actually shown results. You know, we have the Grow Our Own program, which is something that Senator De Michelle Kidani started um, three years ago, and we're seeing an uptick in applications, right? So we know that the, when we tell people about it, they'll find out about it, and those who are meant to become teachers who have the desire to do so, they'll be a great fit to the program. Another data point, I don't have the exact numbers, but I have heard this comment over and over again in our meetings, which is DOE is seeing the lowest vacancy rates in teachers. That's not to say our problem of teacher shortage is over, but that is saying that you know efforts such as the Grow Our Own program, such as you know pay differential increase for hard to staff and high need areas of teaching, those efforts are, are working. When we show that teaching is a viable profession, it is a needed profession, it is an important profession for those who have the inclination and have the, the desire to do so, you know, that if they, we tell them about it and we help them understand the path toward it, it does help fix that teacher shortage problem. And it was starting to, and then we have the pandemic, but we got to look at the long-term, we got to play the long game, right? So we know that Maybe it's going to be two, four, six, eight years before our state really recovers from this. But by the time that we do, wouldn't it be great if we then have, you know, a good number of licensed teachers to then get into those, those teaching positions that we need to fill? What is your biggest need for teachers right now? Are you looking at any grade level or specialty that you're trying to recruit right now? Yeah, well, for the longest time, it's always been special education, but then, you know, year after year, it started to actually expand into other fields. So currently, high need fields for the state of Hawaii would be special education, Hawaiian immersion. We're looking at your secondary subject areas of math, science, and English, and then also some world languages. So that's, that's where the highest 
needs are, but when you look at the employment, the people are getting hired across everything. And the, the most positions that are available year to year are elementary, but it's not considered a high need field because there's a lot of people interested in elementary licensure. So furloughs, it sounds like they've been avoided uh, for now, but I mean, it's probably going to be a very big um, possibility in the next few years. So how does that affect your recruiting uh, at this moment? Well, I think it really goes back to the idea that we have an issue of just underfunding of public education in Hawaii before the pandemic um, even started. And, and so it really comes down to you know, just the, the values that we place on our public schools and, you know, its purpose and its mission. Um, you know, the idea that we would be furloughing our teachers, you know, that that's definitely a struggle in, in terms of trying to get more people to go in because, you know, it's a, it's a noble profession. A lot of people that go into it, it's because they have a calling. It's because they have that that innate desire to to help others. And I think, you know, one of the drawbacks of that is that Sometimes, you know, people aren't are taken advantage of a little bit. And I think that's kind of where we are. We need to understand that these are professionals. They have to go back to school to become a teacher. Um, and so that commitment and that drive and, and what they put into it, I don't think we can afford to really get rid of a lot of our teacher workforce as well as to furlough them. Because already when you adjust it for the cost of living in Hawaii, our Hawaii teachers are paid the lowest in the nation as it is. Um, and so to furlough them means that they would actually get paid even less. And how are they supposed to survive and, you know, put food on their table and, and things like that if that happens. So again, I think one big push that we're really advocating for is help us build up a pipeline that's going to last year to year where people want to join the profession, but also looking at how as a state can we really prioritize public education and put more funding into it with or without a pandemic. Yeah, you know, one of the uh, key issues that we do discuss at our monthly TETC meetings is how we, as a body, uh, TETC as a body, you know, engages with the legislature. And that involves, you know, coming together with testimonies or um, helping with a particular bill and things like that. So that is something that we, we are also involved in, in addition to doing things like, you know, like, like this event, um, echoing what Janet has just shared. And the second thing I wanna I want to share in relation to that question that you asked, Jason, is also that the other thing that we're doing differently this um, this year's event, uh, which Janet mentioned, is having that website, which is a one-stop shop. And what we did uh, on the website is we basically put out a call to teachers, to teacher candidates who are currently in these teacher education programs, to administrators, to stakeholders, and we asked them like, hey you know, why do you think, in, you know, teaching is a great profession? What do you think makes a great teacher? Um, if you have been a teacher, why did you, why did you go into it and why did you stay? And we got a lot of great videos. And if you go to the website, you know, you, there's a section that says, is this for you? And you go through it and you just listen, you hear it straight from the horse's mouth, you know, and a lot of them were very honest. And I think that's important that the reality is that you know going into teaching is not a lucrative financial kind of decision but a lot of people who go into it they go into it because they want it to because they're meant to do it but that doesn't mean we then just kind of say okay well then since you love doing it so much just do it virtually you know for little money or for free no what we want to do is we elevate the profession we know that it's important now let's put our policies and our structures together so that that you know those things align with our values because I think we do value education. We just, you know, as a community, we we haven't gotten the ducks all in a row to to get those things to align. Um, but that's what we're working towards. That's why we're having these things. You know, I'm in a unique position where my full time job is to support people who are trying to navigate the path towards teaching. We have a lot of institutions, a lot of programs, a lot of pathways. And I think one of the biggest needs is just that people just don't know how to navigate to get from where they are now to into a classroom. And so that is really what this event has been designed to do. It's to kind of put everything in one place so they can get all the information they need. So by the time they leave on Saturday, they can say, this is my path and this is how I'm going to get there. And so that's kind of like the main purpose of this particular event. 
That was Program Manager Nezia Azni and Janet Kim, Special Education Recruitment Specialist. Both are with the UH Manoa College of Education. The It's Great to Be a Teacher event takes place this Saturday, January 30th, and is free via Zoom. Registration is still open. You can find links to the website by visiting our page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting works in glass by Hawaii artist Jonathan Swans in the exhibition Parallel at HOMA First Hawaiian Center. More at honolulumuseum.org. Why have evangelical Christians backed Donald Trump? Well, they're both hostile to democracy and democratic values. So what happens to those supporters now? I fear that they're only going to become more angry and more aggrieved, feeling like the president that they believe was anointed by God to restore the Christian nation, Donald Trump, had the election stolen from him. Next time on Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, we'll bring you another story about managing the deer population across Maui County. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. And our email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Thank you.